turn with me again in your Bible to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1052. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to begin reading in Matthew chapter 22 in verse 34 this morning. I want to speak for a few minutes today on this subject, loving God and loving people, Matthew chapter 22. We'll begin reading in verse 34, and this is what the word of God says. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law. And the prophets. If I were to ask you to state the threefold vision of First Baptist Church, could you? If you've been through the new members class, you should be able to. If you use the front entrance of the building regularly, it greets you on the wall to your right every time you enter the building. Still having trouble remembering? Let me help you. At First Baptist Church, we want to love God, love people, and make disciples. And this threefold statement of vision is taken directly from the pages of Scripture. And the first two components find their roots in the text before us this morning. Now, this is the third in a series of questions posed by the Pharisees and the Sadducees for the purposes of discrediting and entrapping Jesus. They have asked him questions about taxes, about the resurrection, and now about God's commandments. And in response to their final question, Jesus declared that love is the ultimate divine requirement concerning our relationship with God and our relationship with others. We find the commandment to love God and to love Him with everything we have all throughout Scripture. This commandment first appears in the law of Moses that Jay read to us a few moments ago in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5 where Moses writes, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This verse is so comprehensive, it expresses a whole way of life, a life of love. And Moses repeated this call again and again to the people of God. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12, Moses wrote this to them, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. We find this same principle in the commands of Joshua and in the prayers of Solomon. 
It is one of the most basic commands in all of the Old Testament. We are to love God. This commandment is repeated here in this passage by Jesus. And it's also found in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of Luke in a slightly different form with the added word, love God with all of your strength. And it is clear not only from the Old Testament, but also from the New Testament that we are to love God. Now, friends, I believe that one of the greatest statements that could ever be made about a pastor is when one of the sheep says that his ministry helped them to love God more. And if I could accomplish one goal as your pastor, it would be my desire to teach you to love God more. That through the ministry of the Word, your love and your affection for God and for His Word and for the things of His kingdom would swell and overflow in every area of your life. For Scripture is clear. We are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. And in this passage before us this morning, Jesus teaches us the importance of loving God. Now, the outline is simple. I'm taking it straight from the text. And as usual in the Gospel of Matthew, I have to give you a bunch of groundwork before I get to the application. So keep your Bible open, follow along, stay with me, and it'll all work out in the end. The first thing I want you to see is the question found in verses 34 to 36. Matthew records, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law. Now you'll notice that Matthew says that when Jesus answered the Sadducees' question in verse 28 by showing that Moses taught the resurrection, he silenced the Sadducees. The word silenced is a important word. It literally means to muzzle, to forcefully restrict the opening of the mouth. It's used to describe the muzzling of an ox, to describe Jesus's silencing of a demon, and even Jesus's silencing of the storm. And what Matthew is wanting us to see with the use of this word is that the Sadducees were verbally rendered incapacitated By the Lord Jesus Christ. They were utterly speechless. And hearing that Jesus silenced the Sadducees, he says that the Pharisees gathered together somewhere in the temple to plan their next strategy in form of attack to discredit Jesus. And he says that one of them, a lawyer, came from among the pack of the Pharisees and he came to Jesus and he asked him a question. But notice what the text says. He asked him the question to test him. Now Mark in his account of this incident says that the man was a scribe. But you'll notice that Matthew here refers to him as a lawyer. Placing emphasis on this man's expertise in the law of Moses. As well as his experience in adjudicating religious and social disputes. 
This man was probably one of the most learned and astute experts on Scripture and rabbinical law in all of the Pharisees. And it was the Pharisees thinking that if anyone could trap Jesus, if anyone could discredit him, it must be this man. And it's interesting to note that the language that Matthew is using here to describe this turn of events in the life of Jesus reminds us of the psalmist and what he said in Psalm 2, verses 2 and 3, when he wrote, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And that's the picture Entrapping Jesus, discrediting him, all through a question that is designed to test him. So you'll notice in the text, in verse 36, the question that is posed to Jesus has a mixture of feelings and emotions behind it. First of all, it's a question of animosity from a lawyer who is representing the Pharisees and who is there to test Jesus about his understanding and his faithfulness to the law of Moses. But as I mentioned, it's a mixed question. Because on the other side of the coin, this is a man with a sincere desire to learn from Jesus. For Mark, in his account, records that this lawyer was different from all of the other Pharisees and all the other Sadducees that had approached Jesus. And in Mark chapter 12 and verse 28... Mark says that this lawyer acknowledged that Jesus had answered the Sadducees' question wisely. And so this man is full of mixed emotions. On the one hand, he's there to test him. On another hand, he recognizes there's something different about Jesus, and he's come to learn from him. And so in verse 36... This lawyer refers to Jesus as a teacher, and he asks the question, what is the great command in the law? Now, friends, you have to understand that this was not a new question. The scribes had been debating this question for centuries. And in addition to the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses on the tablets of stone, The scribes had documented through Moses' writings 613 laws. And they developed them into two different categories. Positive laws and negative laws. And they surmised that there were 248 positive laws. One for every part of the human body. And 365 negative laws. One for every day of the year. 613 laws. Now, no one in their right mind would ever think that anyone could keep all 613 of these laws, let alone remember them. And so the scribes decided, with the help of the rabbis, that they would take all of these laws in these two different categories, and they would divide them even further. They would divide them as heavy burdens... And as light burdens, as important laws and unimportant laws. The heavy ones being absolutely binding and the light ones being less binding. Now keep in mind that they made all of these divisions without God's authority or command. 
They took it upon themselves to do this. And in spite of all of their hard work to help the people and all of their debates and all of their organization of the laws, they never could reach unanimity about which ones were heavy and which ones were light. And so as a result, the Pharisees wanted to know from Jesus, Jesus, how do you perceive these 613 laws given by God through Moses? Jesus, what is your system? Jesus, how do you divide them up? Which ones are heavy? Which ones are light? And Jesus, when you tell us your system, tell us which one is the greatest. And there's the test and the trap. For if Jesus were to single out one, they could discredit him as a heretic. And so with this question, the lawyer is asking, Jesus, of the 613 commandments, which one is at the heart of them all? Which Law is the greatest commandment of Moses. Why did they ask it? Well, the scribes and the Pharisees considered Moses to be the supreme human figure in Scripture. After all, Moses had spoken face to face with God. He was the humblest man on earth, and he had taken the tablets of stone engraved by the finger of God into his own hands. He was the great deliverer of God's people out of Egypt to the promised land, and he was above all others, and they felt that Jesus didn't appreciate Moses and that his teaching and handling of Scripture was contrary to theirs and was contrary to Moses. And if his teaching was contrary to Moses, how in the world could he be the Messiah? And this would be enough evidence to condemn him and discredit him in the eyes of the people. And through his answer to the lawyer's question, the Pharisees assumed that Jesus' naming of the one great commandment in the law would be sufficient to vilify him and to get rid of him. Now that's the question. And that's the understanding behind the question. So notice with me, secondly, the first response in verses 37 and 38. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Jesus responded without hesitation. And the answer he gave was in harmony not only with the law of Moses, but also with the ancient Jewish custom that was based on that law. His answer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 and was a part of the Jewish prayer known as the Shema, which as Jay said is the Hebrew word where we get our word here. And it was named this because the prayer begins with the phrase, Hear, O Israel. And the Shema was comprised of the text of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 to 21, and Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 to 41. And all of these texts were the most familiar and most copied passages of Scripture in all of Judaism. 
And so when Jesus gave this answer based on Deuteronomy chapter 6, everyone within hearing distance would have known clearly what he was referring to. Because in Jesus' day, every faithful Jew recited the Shema twice a day. And these passages from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 7 were two of the four scripture texts that were copied on small pieces of parchment and they were placed in phylacteries that were worn on the foreheads and the left arms of the Jewish men for their times of prayer. And also, these texts of Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11 were placed in mezuzahs, small boxes that the Jews attached to their doorposts. And so with his answer, Jesus is saying that the great commandment is the commandment of Moses that you wear on your arm, that you wear on your forehead, and that you attach to the doorposts of your home. And in verse 38, he says to them, this is the great and the first commandment. And he says to them that this commandment is great because it encompasses all of the other commands. If you want to understand, Jesus says, the 613 commands given by God through Moses, you have to understand this first. Loving God is at the heart of all 613. That's why this command is great. And it's first because its demands are immense. And it's first because it is of first importance. If you're going to live for God and if you're going to obey God and if you're going to follow His commands, Jesus is saying to them, you have to love Him first. Your obedience to Him must come from your love for Him. And this commandment is great and it's first because this commandment, this answer that Jesus gives them, summarizes the first four of the Ten Commandments, all of them having to do with our relationship with God. So Jesus' answer to this lawyer and to the Pharisees is comprehensive. The key to understanding all of the law, the key to understanding your relationship with God is found in this. You must love Him. Okay, we understand it. Let's go home. No, you have to ask questions of the text, friends. And there's one overriding question of this text. What does it mean to love God? with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and as some of the texts say, your strength. This is where we get practical and try to apply it. The word love that Jesus uses here refers primarily to an act of mind and an act of the will. It is the determined care for the welfare of something or someone. 
It's an act of the mind that informs an action of the will. It might well include strong emotion, but its distinguishing characteristics were dedication and commitment of choice. It is a love that recognizes and chooses to follow what is righteous and noble and true, regardless of what one's feelings might be. It is the Hebrew equivalent of a New Testament word that refers to intelligent, purposeful, committed love that is an act of the will. So to love God is to love Him as an act of your will. It is to choose to love Him. It is to choose to follow Him purposefully, intelligently, with a commitment and a devotion to Him. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and as Mark adds, with all of your strength, does not express separate and technical definitions of each element of our human nature making three or four different categories of what it means to love God. It is comprehensive. We are to love God as an act of the will with every part of our lives. And so then he breaks this love down. Love God as an act of your will with your heart. To the Hebrews, the heart referred to the core of a person's being. It's the center of our thoughts and our words and our deeds. Think of it this way, friends. When the Bible uses the word heart like this, it is describing the center of all that we are, that everything in us flows from our heart. It's not the organ. It's the center of our lives. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for out of it flow the issues of life. That's why Jesus said, Whatever comes out of your mouth originates in your heart. It's the center of your life. And so we are to love the Lord our God as an act of the will from the very center of our life that flows into every area of our life, in our thoughts and in our words and in our actions. We love God with our heart when we dedicate our lives and our bodies and all that we are and all that we have to serving Him. And so you have to ask the question, do you love God like that? Does your body, does your life, does the very center of who you are and your heart love God? I'm going to quote Spurgeon a couple times because he's just poignant. Because he is our God, Jehovah claims our heart's love. As our creator, preserver, provider, and judge, he commands us to yield to him all our heart's affection, to love him first, to love him best, to love him heartiest, out of all comparison to the love we have to any fellow creature or to ourselves. Did you hear that? We love him with all of our heart's affection. We love him first. We love him best. 
We love him most. This, friends, is what it means to love God with all of our heart. First, best, most, from the very center of our lives. But he doesn't stop there. Love him with your soul. The soul, I think, is one of the most difficult words to define in all of Scripture. One commentator said that it's closest to what we would call emotion. And it's the word that Jesus used when he cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night he was arrested, my soul is very sorrowful. It's the seed of our emotions. It's the part of us that will live forever. So we are to love God with our soul. And we love God with our soul when his word and his commands become our convictions and our commitments. And we're locked in with all of our emotions to God, to his word and to his commands. And we're committed to that. And so then we ask ourselves, do we love God like this? Do we love him with all of our emotions? Do we love him with all of our soul? And, and, and notice the progression, friends. This is really, really important. We live in a day where everyone thinks that for church to be real and for church to be practical, church has to uh, create in you some kind of a feeling, some kind of emotion, some kind of a warm fuzzy that it, it doesn't matter what truth you hear. It doesn't matter what you encounter. What matters is what you feel. And look at Jesus' answer. He doesn't begin with how you feel. He begins with the volition of your will. He begins with the very center of who you are. You're to love him with all your heart. The very center of who you are. With everything that you are and everything that you have. And then you're to love him with your soul. Your, with your emotions. With your feelings. But the feelings don't trump the will. And as I'm going to show you in a minute. The feelings don't trump the intellect. In fact, I would submit to you. Look at the answer. The feelings are put in between two guardrails, the will and the mind, so that they inform how you feel. Not your feelings informing everything else. Spurgeon said, we are to love God with all of our life, to love Him more than our life, so that if necessary, we would give up our life rather than give up our love to God. He says that's what it means to love God with your soul. You love him more than your life. You're willing to give up your life and your love and your devotion to God. So love him with your heart and love him with your soul. And then he says love him with your mind. This word can be defined broadly and it carries the general idea of moving ahead with energy and strength. The mind is used here in the sense of intellectual, willful, vigor, and determination, carrying mental endeavor and emphasizing strength. I love him with all of my mind. I love him with my intellect. I love him with all of my strength. And when we love God with our mind, we discipline our thoughts and we dedicate ourselves to understanding God and his word. We discipline our minds. We dedicate ourselves to knowing Him and understanding Him and learning Him and studying Him. 
And we ask the question, do you love God like that? Do you love him with the very center of who you are? Do you love him with your emotions? Do you love him with your mind in disciplined pursuit? Spurgeon says we are to love God with our intellect, with all the powers of our mind, bringing memory and thought and imagination and reason and judgment and all our mental powers as willing subjects to bow at God's feet in adoration and love. The creative bent of our lives that he gives us to write great things that teach us about God. To draw beautiful pictures that cause us to worship God because of his beauty and because of his greatness. Do we love God with those gifts like that that he's given us? Do we love him with our voices? Do we love him with our skills? Do we discipline and devote ourselves to knowing this great God? That's the question. With your imagination, with your creativity, with your reason, with your thoughts. He's saying that we are to give God our best thinking. Because how we think about God has a tremendous influence on how we feel and how we live. In his book, The Pastor is Scholar and the Scholar is Pastor, Reflections on Life and Ministry, John Piper makes the connection between what we think and what we feel. And this is what he says, right thinking about God exists to serve right Feelings for God. Do you see that, friends? You got to make sure you're thinking right about God to feel right about God. And so many times our feelings get us in trouble in our relationship with God. Because as Jeremiah reminds us, our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And who can know it? That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, keep great vigilance over your heart. Because everything in your life flows out of that. And your heart can deceive you. And your heart can get you to start thinking things about you and your relationship with God that are not true. And that's where loving God with your mind and your intellect and understanding His Word and bringing to memory His Word helps keep your feelings that are deceiving you in check. But most of the time, we would rather our feelings trump our mind and go with how we feel instead of what we know to be true. And look at Jesus' answer. We are to love God with our heart, with our soul, and with our mind. And he's not telling us to do it in three different ways. He is telling us to love God with all of ourselves. It's the way of thinking about our whole life. One scholar said, these three nouns together indicate the essential nature of man, his ultimate fundamental loyalty, not a superficial allegiance. That's the point of Jesus' answer. 
Don't relate to God superficially. Relate to God devotedly. Relate to God with loyalty. Relate to God with commitment. And the point that Jesus is making with his answer is that we are to love God with everything we are and with everything that we have. And if you look at the text, you'll see this emphasis in the text. The phrase, all your, is repeated three times. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It means, listen, this is worth your trip to church this morning. God's wholehearted love must not be answered in a half-hearted manner. That's the point. In other words, you're not to go through the motions in your relationship with God. You're not to be superficial in your relationship with God. You're not to take God for granted in how you relate to Him. You don't do any of your other earthly relationships like that. What do you do if you're married and you never communicate with your spouse? Before long, you won't have a marriage. What do you do if you're married and you never uh, interact or do anything together? You won't have a marriage. What do you do with your kids if you never spend time with them? Pretty soon, your relationship with your children will break down and deteriorate. You're not superficial in those relationships and Jesus's point is you can't be superficial in your relationship with God it's to be wholehearted devotion and look look at the text it's personal all your heart all your soul all your mind your you're not to love God with all of the pastor's heart and all the pastor's soul, and all the pastor's mind, so that you just come to church and get stirred up by him and live on that for a week. No, you're to come to church and get stirred up by him to love and good works, to love God more, so that when you leave Monday through Saturday, you could actually love God more yourself. That's the point. With all of your person. Here's how you could divine love for God from this text. It's a love that is personal. It's your love in expression to Him. It's a love that is willing. It is an act of the will. It is a choice to love Him. It's a love that serves. It's a love that feels. And it's a love that is intelligent. That's what it means to love God. All of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. And listen to me, friends. This kind of love is a true mark of saving faith. Loving God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength is a mark that you're a Christian, that you've been saved. And see, that's the point that Jesus is making to them. 
He's been for chapter after chapter in the Gospel of Matthew confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees in their unbelief and their rejection of him. And he's bringing a final blow to them. Here's how you know you're not right with God. You don't really love him. Oh, you love what he promises you. You love what he can do for you. But at the end of the day, Pharisees, Sadducees, you don't really love him. The Bible tells us how our love for God is demonstrated. I'm going to give you just a few markers and try to bring all the application together. In Psalm 18, the psalmist tells us that when we meditate on the glory of God, it is a demonstration of our love for him. In Psalm 31, the psalmist tells us that when we trust in God's divine power, it is an expression of our love for him. Can you think of that, friends? Is there anything in your life that you need to trust God for this morning? I guarantee you that some of you have brought something in here you're depending upon God for. You're trying to trust him. You're struggling. One day you're good. The next day you're bad. And you're wavering back and forth in your trust. And the psalmist will tell us in Psalm 31 that when we trust in his divine power, it is an expression of our love and our devotion to God. So keep trusting him. Keep trusting him and depending upon him. Psalm 63 tells us that we love God when we seek communion and fellowship with him. And I've said this a lot in recent days, but I think it's important. Does anyone else in the room feel like there's like two days in the week, like Sunday comes and then it's Saturday again? Or am I the only one? And if life feels that busy, friends, the question is, where are you seeking God in the busyness? Where are you stopping in the green pastures? Where are you meditating on his love? Where are you receiving divine nourishment from him? When you truly love God, the scriptures are abundantly clear. You seek him. You, you desire him. You pursue him. And if there's not a pursuit, if there's not a seeking, if there's not a desire for his word and for his presence and for his people, what are you basing your love on him with? Do you delight in him? Do you delight in his word? I mean, we need to stop making excuses about our lack of pursuit for God. Because scripture is clear that if you have a relationship with him, you'll pursue him. And so are you seeking fellowship with him? Psalm 119 over and over and over again says that we love God by loving his law, by loving his word. I, I just read and prayed through it this morning, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who he delights in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. See, a true sign of love for God is that you love his word. You can't get enough of it. You're hungry for it. You want to meditate on it. You want to read it. You want to hear it proclaimed. You want more and more and more and more of it. That's how you know you love God. And like if, if you hear his word proclaimed, you say, man, I wish this would hurry up and get over. 
Do you understand that when you think those thoughts, it's testifying about where your heart is and your love towards God? It could also be because you're listening to a boring preacher. I understand that. But you have to think deeper. Are you seeking him? Are you loving his law? Do you love what he loves? Psalm 119. Do you love who he loves? 1 John 5. And John makes it clear, if you don't love who God loves, you don't love God. Do you hate what God hates? Psalm 97. Do you grieve over your sin? Do you reject the world? 1 John 2. Do you long to be with Christ? 2 Timothy 4. Friends, these are benchmarks on how you know if you love God. And at some point, don't you have to stop making excuses? Don't you have to be confronted with the reality and the truth of your own heart and soul? Whether whether or not there's really love there? Now, if you're like me, you listen to these things rattled off as I was studying them and encountering them in my study this week, and you say, to love God like this is impossible. I say, I agree. It means that everything upon which our heart is set, everything upon which our soul is preoccupied with, everything that interests and captivates our minds must express love for God. Is there anyone this morning that would say everything in their heart, everything in their soul, everything in their mind, even right now in this moment, expresses love for God? I don't think any of us could say that. The reality is our hearts and our souls and our minds give more evidence of our selfishness and indifferentness and our cold-heartedness than love. And if this is true, how do we love God? That's the question, isn't it? How do we love God? Well, the answer is actually very simple and powerful. Loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength is only possible through the expression of the love of God himself living through us in a divine and powerful way. You say, what are you saying, Pastor? Well, I'm saying that the central theme in the storyline of Scripture is the love of God. And that God has demonstrated His love to us by sending His Son from the glory and the splendor of heaven to live on this earth a perfect, sinless, spotless life that you and I could never live. And he sent his son to this earth, as Luke tells us, to seek and to save those who are lost. That is you and me and everyone who's ever been born in this world. And God's love reached its climax when Jesus was nailed by his hands and his feet to the cross, raised high in the air and dropped into the ground. And there on that cross, God demonstrated fully and powerfully his complete Love for you and me and for all sinners. When Jesus Christ, the man who knew no sin, became sin for us and died for our sins 
in our place. That on that cross, the Lord Jesus Christ experienced the wrath of God for sin that you and I deserve to experience for our sin so that through Christ we could experience God's mercy, God's grace, and yes, friends, God's love. John MacArthur described it this way. To say that Jesus died for man's sin is to say that he died for man's hatred of God, which is the essence of all sin. Christ died for our lack of love for God. And you say to me, well, pastor, I was raised in the church. I've always loved God. And I say to you, based on Romans chapter 3, that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says you were born a sinner. You were born in enmity with God. And that you can't love God until he sets his love on you first. And that's why Jesus died. But friends, that's not all of the gospel. It's not all of the good news. God not only dealt with our hatred of him through the death of his son on the cross, the Bible tells us that God also dealt with our inability to completely and wholeheartedly and devotedly love him. The way this text is describing. Listen to Romans chapter 5 and verse 5. Paul tells us that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And what the Bible teaches us is that when you and I confess our sins and we turn from them in repentance and we trust in Christ and his work on the cross for our sin, the Bible says that God gives us his Holy Spirit to come and live inside of us. And it is as the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of us, listen to Romans 5, 5, that God the Father pours his love into our hearts. And when the Holy Spirit comes and the love of God comes with Him, God doesn't just save us and forgive us through our Son, through His Son, and leave us to ourselves to love Him with our cold, distracted hearts. No, God is so good and gracious. He gives us His Spirit and He gives us His love so that through the power of His Spirit that lives inside of us, we can turn our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength back towards the God who saved us and love Him completely. But it is not a love of our own making. It is a love that comes from God Himself who first set His love upon us. That's why love is the fruit of the Spirit of God, not your determination. You don't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because you're determined to do it. You won't make it to Wednesday. You love God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. 
Because you've received Christ as your Savior. And upon receiving Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit of God has come to live inside of you. And He's taken your old, cold heart of stone and He's softened it. And He's made it a heart of flesh. And He's deposited His love inside of you as the very center of your being. So that now you can begin to love Him with your heart and with your soul and with your mind and with your mouth and with your words and with your intellect and with your creativity and with your strength and with all that you have where you couldn't love him now you can and it's not because you pulled yourself up and did it yourself it's because of what God did through you to you through his son and through his spirit listen you will never love God like this without the power of the Holy Spirit you will never love God like this without being reconciled to God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. A faith that is not consumed with loving God is not saving faith. That's what Jesus says. The Bible gives a description of a believer and an unbeliever. And I'll close with this. Here's the description of the believer in Ephesians 6.24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. What's the description of the believer? They love the Lord Jesus Christ with a love that is incorruptible, that's not defiled, It's not tainted. And the only way someone can love Jesus like that is to know him as their Savior and have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Now listen to the description of an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Do you hear it? You're cursed. If you have no love for the Lord. Friends, God is to be first in our lives. That's what Jesus is teaching us. He's not to be second. He's not to be third. He's not to be fourth. He is to be first. We're to love him Above all others, we are to love him more than all others. And the question we have to ask ourselves, the question that this text demands is, do we love God like this? Does your schedule confirm this? Do you know that the statistics tell preachers today that the average committed church member in a church that preachers should expect to see them in church once or twice a month. That that's the national average for attendance in church. Once or twice a month. Do you know what that statistic tells me? It tells me that people plan everything else in their life ahead of church as if Sunday surprises you every week. Now, I'm serious. And then we wonder why our churches are weak and our families are weak and our faith is weak 
Because we're disobeying very simple commands when the Bible commands us to gather together as the people of God. And you're saying that once a month is enough. I'm good. I mean, after all, Pastor, you talk a long time. I mean, once a month is good. It can carry me through. And I say to you, you have to ask yourself, if once a month is good, are you really loving God the way this text says? Or are you deceiving yourselves and making excuses? Like You're not thinking, friends, about the end. You're not thinking about when you're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day. And you're going to give an account of your life. And in that moment, you will have regret. I will have regret. We will all have regret. And in that moment when you are gazing into the purity of the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that you thought was so important will be nothing. He will discern what is really true. And it will come through the fire like gold and silver and precious stones. And all the things that we thought were important will be burned up like wood, hay, and straw. And there will be regret. Does the testimony of your life confirm that you love God? Do your passions and your pursuits confirm that you love God? Or are you deceiving yourself? I've told you week in and week out, and the reason why I keep telling you is because Jesus keeps talking to him. He keeps talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious people of his day. And I keep telling you week in and week out, you can deceive yourself. You can think you're in a right spot and not be in a right spot. And Jesus is giving you the test to know how it's real or not. You have to deal with it. You have to deal with the text. You have to deal with Jesus. Has your heart been changed? Does God's love dwell in you? And here's how you know, and it's what I'm going to be talking about next week. You know God's love dwells in you by how you treat other people. Do you love him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength? Let's pray. Oh God, we are humbled by your word. And we confess to you today our inability to love you the way this text demands on our own. And we thank you for the gift of your son and for the gift of your spirit. And we pray, God, that you would help us to love you devotedly the way this text describes. And we pray that you would cleanse us and forgive us our lack of devotion, our lack of passion, for our distractions. You would renew us, wash us clean. 
And we pray today for those in this room who may not know you. Oh God, would you draw them to yourself this very moment and save them. We thank you for loving us enough to send your son and to give us your spirit and to give us your word. And we pray that you would use it in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.